This is section eight of Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. Territorial Enterprise, August 2, 1863. A duel prevented. Whereas Thomas Fitch, editor of the Union, having taken umbrage at an article headed The Virginia Union, Not the Federal, written by Joseph T. Goodman, our chief editor, and published in these columns, and whereas said Fitch, having challenged said Goodman to mortal combat, naming John Church as his friend, and whereas the said Goodman, having accepted such challenge, and chosen Thomas Peasley to appoint the means of death, therefore on friday afternoon it was agreed between the two seconds that the battle should transpire at nine o'clock yesterday morning which would have been late in the day for most duelists but it was fearfully early for newspaper men to have to get up place the foot of the cannon below the gould and curry mill weapons navy six-shooters distance fifteen paces conditions the first fire to be delivered at the word, the others to follow at the pleasure of the targets, as long as a chamber in their pistols remained loaded. To say that we felt a little proud to think that in our official capacity we were about to rise above the recording of ordinary street broils and the monotonous transactions of the police court, to delineate the ghastly details of a real duel, would be to use the mildest of language." much as we deplored the state of things which was about to invest us with a new dignity we could not help taking much comfort in the reflection that it was out of our power and also antagonistic to the principles of our class to prevent the state of things above mentioned all conscientious scruples all generous feelings must give away to our inexorable duty which is to keep the public mind in a healthy state of excitement and experience has taught us that blood alone can do this. At midnight, in the company of young Wilson, we took a room at the International, to the end that, through the vigilance of the watchman, we might not be suffered to sleep until past nine o'clock. The policy was good. Our strategy was faultless. At six o'clock in the morning we were on the street, feeling as uncomfortable in the gray dawn as many another early bird that founded its faith upon the inevitable worm, and beheld too late that that worm had failed to come to time, for the friends of the proposed deceased were interfering to stop the duel, and the officers of the law were seconding their efforts. But the two desperadoes finally gave these meddlers the slip, and drove off with their seconds to the dark and bloody ground." whereupon young Wilson and ourself at once mounted a couple of Olin's fast horses, and followed in their wake at the rate of a mile a minute. Since then we enjoy more real comfort in standing up than sitting down, being neither iron-clad nor even half-soled. But we lost our bloody item at last, for Marshal Perry arrived early with a detachment of constables, and also Deputy Sheriff Blodgett came with a lot of blasted sheriffs, and the battleground lying and being in Story County, these miserable, meddling whelps arrested the whole party and marched them back to town, and at the very moment we were suffering for a duel. The whole force went off down there and left the city at the mercy of thieves and incendiaries. Now, that is about all the strategy those fellows know. 
we have only to add that Goodman and Fitch were obliged to give bonds in the sum of five thousand dollars each to keep the peace, and if anything were lacking to make this robbery of the reporters complete, that last circumstance furnished the necessary material. In interfering with our legitimate business, Mr. Perry and Mr. Blodgett probably think they are almighty smart, but we calculate to get even with them. Territorial Enterprise, August 4, 1863 Portion of Original An Apology Repudiated We are to blame for giving the unreliable an opportunity to misrepresent us, and therefore refrain from repining to any great extent at the result. We simply claim the right to deny the truth of every statement made by him in yesterday's paper, to annul all apologies he coined as coming from us, and to hold him up to public commiseration as a reptile endowed with no more intellect, no more cultivation, no more Christian principle than animates and adorns the sportive jackass rabbit of the Sierras. We have done. Territorial Enterprise, August 19, 1863. From Steamboat Springs, Nevada Territory, dated August 18, 1863. Letter from Mark Twain. Editors, Enterprise. Never mind the date. I haven't known what day of the month it was since the 4th of July. In reality, I am not well enough to write, but am angry now and, like our old Methodist parson at home in Missouri, who started in to produce rain by a season of fervent prayer, I'll do it or bust. I notice in this morning's enterprise a lame, impotent abortion of a biography of Marshall Perry, and I cannot understand what you mean by it. You either want to impose upon the public, with an incorrect account of that monster's career, compiled from items furnished by myself, I'll warrant, or else you wish to bring into disrepute my own biography of him, which is the only correct and impartial one ever published. Which is it? If you really desired that the people should know the man they were expected to vote for, why did you not republish that history? By referring to it you will see that your own has not a word of truth in it. Jack Perry has made you believe he was born in New York, when in reality he was born in New Jersey. He has told you he was a pressman. On the contrary, he is by occupation a shoemaker. By nature a poet, and by instinct a great moral humbug. If I chose, I could enumerate a dozen more instances to prove that, in his own vulgar phraseology, Jack Perry has successfully played you for a Chinaman. I suppose if he had told you the size of his boots was number five, you wouldn't have known enough to refrain from publishing the absurdity. Now, the next time you want any facts about Jack Perry, perhaps you had better refer to the standard biography compiled by myself, or else let me hash them up for you. You have rushed into these biographies like a crazy man, and I suppose you have found out by this time that you are no more fitted for that sort of thing than I am for a circus rider which painfully reminds me that my last horseback trip at Lake Bigler, on that razor-bladed beast of Tom Nye's, has lengthened my legs and shortened my body some. If I could devote more time to composition and less to coughing, I would write all those candidates' biographies over again, just to show you how little you know about it. 
I must have led a gay life at Lake Bigler, for it seems a month since I flew up there on the pioneer coach alongside of Hank Monk, the king of stage drivers. But I couldn't cure my cold. I was too careless. I went to the lake, Lake Bigler I must beg leave to call it still, notwithstanding, if I recollect rightly, it is known among sentimental people as either Tahoe Lake or Yahoo Lake. However, one of the last will do as well as the other, since there is neither sense nor music in either of them. With a voice like a bullfrog, and by indulging industriously in reckless imprudence, I succeeded in toning it down to an impalpable whisper in the course of seven days. I left there in the pioneer coach at half-past one on Monday morning, in company with Mayor Arick, Mr. Boruck, and young Wilson, a nice party for a Christian to travel with, I admit, and arrived in Carson at five o'clock, three hours and a half out. As nearly as I can estimate it, we came down the grade at the rate of a hundred miles an hour, or if you do not know how frightfully deep those mountain gorges look, let me recommend that you go, also, and skim along their edges at the dead of night. I left Carson at two o'clock with Dyer. Dyer, the polite Dyer, the accommodating, Dyer of the Carson and Steamboat stage line, and reached the Steamboat Springs Hotel at dusk, where all others who are weary and hungry are invited to come, and be handsomely provided for by Messrs. Holmes and Stowe. At Washoe we ate a supper of unimpeachable squareness at the Washoe Exchange, where I found Hon. J. K. Lovejoy, Dr. Bauman, and Captain Rawlings. There may have been other old acquaintances present, but the champagne that Lovejoy drank confused my vision so much that I cannot recollect whether there were or not. I learned here that the people who own ranches along Steamboat Creek are very indignant at Judge Mott for granting an injunction to the Pleasant Valley Mill Company, whereby they are prohibited from using the water in the stream upon their lands. They say the Mill Company purchased the old Smith Ranch and that portion of the creek which passes through it, and now they assume the right to deprive ranchmen owning property two or three miles above their lines from irrigating their lands with water which the mill company never before pretended to claim. They further state that the mill men gave bonds in the trivial sum of one thousand dollars, whereas the damage already done the crops by the withdrawal of the water amounts to more than twenty thousand dollars. Again, the idea is that the mill men need the water to wet a new ditch which they have been digging, and after that is accomplished they will pay the amount of the bond and withdraw the injunction. Moreover, so the story runs, Judge Mott promised a decision in the case three weeks ago, and has not kept his word. The citizens of Galena, in mass meeting assembled, have drawn up a petition praying that the judge will redress their grievances to-day, without further delay. If the prayer is unheeded, they will turn the water on their ranches to-morrow in defiance of the order of the court." I believe I have recounted all these facts just as I got them, but if I haven't I can't help it, because I have lost my notebook again. I think I could lose a thousand notebooks a week if I had them. And, moreover, if you can ferret out the justice of the above proceedings, you are a better lawyer than I am, and here comes Orrick Johnson's Virginia stage again, and I shall have to fling in my benediction before I sing the doxology as usual. Somehow or other— I can never get through with 
what I have to say. Mark Twain Territorial Enterprise, August 25, 1863 Letter from Mark Twain, Steamboat Springs Hotel, August 23, 1863 The Springs Editors, Enterprise I have overstepped my furlough a full week, but then this is a pleasant place to pass one's time. These springs are ten miles from Virginia, six or seven from Washoe City, and twenty from Carson. They are natural. The devil boils the water, and the white steam puffs up out of crevices in the earth, along the summits of a series of low mounds extending in an irregular semicircle for more than a mile. The water is impregnated with a dozen different minerals, each one which smells viler than its fellow, and the sides of the springs are embellished with very pretty party-colored incrustations deposited by the water. From one spring the boiling water is ejected a foot or more by the infernal force at work below, and in the vicinity of all of them one can hear a constant rumbling and surging, somewhat resembling the noises peculiar to a steamboat in motion, hence the name. The Hotel. The Steamboat Springs Hotel is very pleasantly situated on a grassy flat, a stone's throw from the hospital and the bathhouses. It is capable of accommodating a great many guests. The rooms are large, hard-finished, and handsomely furnished. There is an abundant supply of pure water, which can be carried to every part of the house, in case of fire, by means of hose. The table is furnished with fresh vegetables and meats from the numerous fine ranches in the valley. And lastly, Mr. Stowe is a pleasant and accommodating landlord, and is ably seconded by Messrs. Haynes, Ellsworth, and Bingham. These gentlemen will never allow you to get ill-humored for want of polite attention. As I gratefully remember now, when I recall the stormy hours of Friday, when that accursed wake-up Jake was in me. But I haven't got to that yet. God bless us! It is a world of trouble, and we are born to sorrow and tribulation. Yet am I chiefest among sinners, that I should be prematurely damned with wake-up Jake, while others not of the elect go free? I am trying to go on with my letter, but this thing bothers me. Verily, from having wake-up Jake on the stomach for three days, I have finally got it on the brain. I am grateful for the change, but I digress. THE HOSPITAL Dr. Ellis, the proprietor of the springs, has erected a large, tastefully designed, and comfortable and well-ventilated hospital, close to the bathhouses, and it is constantly filled with patients afflicted with all manner of diseases. It would be a very profitable institution, but a great many who come to it half-dead and leave it again restored to robust health forget to pay for the benefits they have received. Others, when they arrive, confess at once that they are penniless, yet few men could look upon the sunken cheeks of these, and upon their attenuated forms and their pleading faded eyes, and refuse them the shelter and assistance we all may need some day. Without expectation of reward, Dr. Ellis gives back life, hope, and health to many a despairing, poverty-stricken devil. And when I think of this, it seems so strange that he could have had the meanness to give me that wake-up Jake. However, I am wandering away from the subject again. All diseases, except confirmed consumption, are treated successfully here. 
a multitude of invalids have attended these baths during the past three years, yet only an insignificant number of deaths have occurred among them. I want to impress one thing upon you. It is a mistaken notion that these springs were created solely for the salvation of persons suffering venereal diseases. True, the fame of the baths rests chiefly upon the miracles performed upon such patients, and upon others afflicted with rheumatism, erysipelas, etc. But then all ordinary ailments can be quickly and pleasantly cured here without a resort to deadly physic. More than two-thirds of the people who come here are afflicted with venereal diseases, fellows who know that if steamboat fails with them they may as well go to trading feet with the undertaker for a box. Yet all here agree that these baths are none the less potent where other diseases are concerned. I know lots of poor feeble wretches in Virginia who could get a new lease of life by soaking their shadows in steamboat springs for a week or two. However, I must pass on to the baths. My friend Jim Miller has charge of these. Within a few days the new bathhouse will be finished, and then twelve persons may bathe at once, or if they be sociable and choose to go on the double-bed principle, four times as many can enjoy the luxury at the same time. Persons afflicted with loathsome diseases use bathrooms, which are never entered by the other patients. You get up here about six o'clock in the morning and walk over to the bathhouse. You undress in an ante-room and take a cold shower-bath, or let it alone if you choose. Then you step into a sort of little dark closet floored with a wooden grating, up through which come puffs and volumes of the hottest steam you ever performed to, because the awkwardness of us feel a hankering to waltz a little under such circumstances, you know. And then, if you are alone, you resolve to have company thenceforward, since to swap comments upon your sensations with a friend must render the dire heatless binding upon the human constitution. I had company always, and it was the pleasantest thing in the world to see a thin-skinned invalid cavorting around in the vapory obscurity, marveling at the rivers of sweat that coursed down his body, cursing the villainous smell of the steam and its bitter salty taste, groping around, meanwhile, for a cold corner, and backing finally into the hottest one, and darting out again in a second, only remarking, Ouch! and repeating it when he sits down, and springs up the same moment off the hot bench. This was fun of the most comfortable character, but nothing could be more agreeable than to put your eye to the little square hole in the door, and see your boiled and smoking comrade writhing under the cold shower-bath, to see him shrink till his shoulders are level with the top of his head, and then shut his eyes and gasp and catch his breath, while the cruel rain pattered down on his back and sent a ghastly shiver through every fibre of his body. It will always be a comfort to me to recall these little incidents. After the shower-bath you return to the ante-room and scrub yourself all over with coarse towels until your hide glows like a parlour-carpet after which you feel as elastic and vigorous as an acrobat. Then, if you are sensible, you take no exercise, but just eat your breakfast and go to bed. You will find that an hour's nap will not hurt you any. THE WAKE-UP JAKE A few days ago I fell a victim to my natural curiosity and my solicitude for the public wheel. Everybody had something to say about wake-up Jake. If a man was low-spirited, if his appetite failed him, if he did not sleep well at night, if he were 
costive if he were bilious or in love or in any other kind of trouble or if he doubted the fidelity of his friends or the efficacy of his religion there was always some one at his elbow to whisper take a wake-up my boy i sought to fathom the mystery but all i could make out of it was that the wake-up jake was a medicine as powerful as the servants of the lamp the secret of whose decoction was hidden away in dr ellis's breast i was not aware that i had any use for the wonderful wake-up but then i felt it to be my duty to try it in order that a suffering public might profit by my experience and i would cheerfully see that public suffer perdition before i would try it again i called upon dr ellis with the air of a man who would create the impression that he is not so much of an ass as he looks and demanded a wake-up jake as unostentatiously as if that species of refreshment were not at all new to me the doctor hesitated a moment and then fixed up as repulsive a mixture as ever was stirred together in a tablespoon i swallowed the nauseous mess and that one meal sufficed me for the space of forty-eight hours and during all that time i could not have enjoyed a viler taste in my mouth if i had swallowed a slaughter-house i lay down with all my clothes on and with an utter indifference to my fate here or hereafter and slept like a statue from six o'clock until noon i got up then the sickest man that ever yearned to vomit and couldn't all the dead and decaying matter in nature seemed buried in my stomach and i heaved and retched and heaved again but i could not compass a resurrection my dead would not come forth finally after rumbling and growling and producing agony and chaos within me for many hours the dreadful dose began its work and for the space of twelve hours it vomited me and purged me and likewise caused me to bleed at the nose i came out of that siege as weak as an infant and went to the bath with palmer of wells fargo and company and it was well i had company for it was about all he could do to keep me from boiling the remnant of my life out in the hot steam i had reached that stage wherein a man experiences a solemn indifference as to whether school keeps or not since then i have gradually regained my strength and my appetite and am now animated by a higher degree of vigor than i have felt for many a day tis well this result seduces many a man into taking a second and even third wake-up jake but i think i can worry along without any more of them i am about as thoroughly waked up now as i care to be my stomach never had such a scouring out since i was born i feel like a jug if i could get young wilson or the unreliable to take a wake-up jake i would do it of course but i shall never swallow another myself i would sooner have a locomotive travel through me and besides i never intend to experiment in physic any more just out of idle curiosity a wake-up jake will furbish a man's machinery up and give him a fresh start in the world but i feel i shall never need anything of that sort any more it would put robust health and life and vim into young wilson and the unreliable but then they always look with suspicion upon any suggestion that i make good-bye well i am going home to virginia to-day though i dislike to part from the jolly boys not to mention iced milk for breakfast with eggs laid to order and spiced oysters after midnight with the rev jack holmes and bingham 
at the steamboat springs hotel in conclusion let me recommend to such of my fellow-citizens as are in feeble health or are wearied out with the cares of business to come down and try the hotel and the steam-baths and the facetious wake-up jake these will give them rest and moving recreation as it were mark twain territorial enterprise august twenty seventh eighteen sixty three local column ye bulletin ciphereth the bulletin folks have gone and swallowed an arithmetic that arithmetic has worked them like a wake-up jake and they have spewed up a multitude of figures we cipher up the importance of the territory sometimes so recklessly that our self-respect lies torpid within us for weeks afterwards but we see now that our most preposterous calculations have been as mild as boarding-house milk we perceive that we haven't the nerve to do up this sort of thing with the bulletin it estimates the annual yield of the precious metals at seven hundred and thirty million dollars bully they say figures don't lie but we doubt it we are distanced that must be confessed yet appalled as we are we will venture upon the bulletin's boundless waste of figures and take the chances a gould and curry bar with two thousand dollars in it weighs nearly one hundred pounds one hundred thousand dollars worth of their bullion would weigh between two and two and a half tons it would take two of wells fargo's stages to carry that one hundred thousand dollars without discommoding the passengers it would take one hundred stages to carry five million dollars two thousand stages to carry one hundred million dollars and fourteen thousand six hundred stages to carry the bulletin's annual yield of seven hundred and thirty million dollars wells fargo and company transport all the bullion out of the territory in their coaches and to attend to this little job they would have to send forty stages over the mountains daily throughout the year sundays not accepted and make each of the forty carry considerably more than a ton of bullion yet they generally send only two stages and the greatest number in one day during the heaviest rush was six stages they didn't each carry a ton of bullion though only smarty from hong kong the bulletin also estimates the average yield of ore from our mines at one thousand dollars a ton bless your visionary soul sixty dollars where they get it regular like is considered good enough in gold hill and it is a matter of some trouble to pick out many tons that will pay four hundred dollars from sixty to two hundred is good rock in the ophir and when that company or the gould and curry or the spanish or any other of our big companies get into a chamber that pays over five hundred dollars they ship it to the bay my boy but they don't ship thousands of tons at a time you know in esmeralda and humboldt ordinary rich rock yields one hundred to two hundred dollars and when better is found it is shipped also reese river appears to be very rich but you can't make an average there yet a while let her mines be developed first we place the average yield of the ore of our territory at one hundred dollars a ton that is high enough we couldn't starve easily on forty-dollar rock lastly the bulletin puts the number of our mills at a hundred and fifty that is another mistake 
the number will not go over a hundred and we would not be greatly amazed if it even fell one or two under that while we are on the subject though we might as well estimate the annual yield of the precious metals also we did not intend to do it at first mr valentine wells fargo's handsome and accomplished agent has handled all the bullion shipped through the virginia office for many a month to his memory which is excellent we are indebted for the following exhibit of the company's business in the virginia office since the first of january eighteen sixty two from january first to april first about two hundred and seventy thousand dollars worth of bullion passed through that office during the next quarter five hundred and seventy thousand dollars next quarter eight hundred thousand dollars next quarter nine hundred and fifty six thousand dollars next quarter one million two hundred and seventy five thousand dollars and for the quarter ending on the thirtieth of last june about one million six hundred thousand dollars thus in a year and a half the virginia office only shipped five million three hundred and thirty thousand dollars in bullion during the year eighteen sixty two they shipped two million six hundred and fifteen thousand dollars so we perceive the average shipments have more than doubled in the last six months this gives us room to promise for the virginia office five hundred thousand dollars a month for the year eighteen sixty three and now perhaps judging by the steady increase in the business we too like the bulletin are underestimating somewhat this gives us six million dollars for the year gold hill and silver city together can beat us we will give them eight no to be liberal ten million dollars to dayton empire city ophir and carson city we will allow an aggregate of eight million dollars which is not over the mark perhaps and may possibly be a little under it to esmeralda we give four million dollars to reese river and humboldt two million dollars which is liberal now but may not be before the year is out so we prognosticate that the yield of bullion this year will be about thirty million dollars placing the number of mills in the territory at one hundred this gives to each the labor of three hundred thousand dollars in bullion during the twelve months allowing them to run three hundred days in the year which none of them more than do this makes their work average one thousand dollars a day one ton of the bulletin's rock or ten of ours say the mills average twenty tons of rock a day and this rock worth fifty dollars a general thing and you have got the actual work of our one hundred mills figured down just about to a spot one thousand dollars a day each and thirty million dollars a year in the aggregate oh no we have never been to school we don't know how to cipher certainly not we are probably a natural fool but we don't know it anyhow we have mashed the bulletin's estimate all out of shape and cut the first left-hand figure off its seven hundred and thirty million dollars as neatly as a regular banker's clerk could have done it end of section eight